Hello, everybody. Welcome to a very special uh, Design Exec Club Town Hall. I'm Mark Bergen, the founder of Driven by Design, and joining me is a, is a fantastic collection of both the next generation and uh, current design leaders that, uh, that are with us. We're going to go through and we're going to ask some really important questions about how do we accelerate to a better future? What are the types of things that need to be done? What are the enablers? What are the blockers? And also, um, what do people have just that singular vision that's there? Um, joining me here, I think we've got Will Knight. You're coming in from London. Hi, Will. How are you doing, Mark? Nice to see you. Well, um, it's uh, how am I doing? I must say, uh, for me, it's uh, just after 4 a.m. in the morning. I know for everybody in London, it's a, a slightly different time for you, but um, uh, we are dedicated to go get these things done here. So, um, uh, so Will, you're, um, you're here with Lucy. Lucy and Will, can you go put your hand up? Yeah? Fantastic. Um, Simon, you're here with Mahalia. Can the two of you go whack your hands up there? Okay. Um, Pippa, you're here with Amy. Yeah, give us some hands there. Phil and Chris, that's pretty easy because you're sitting next to each other. Govinda and Akala, um, you're, you're sitting there next to each other. And David uh, Rosanthi, uh, you're sitting there. Okay, all right. So everybody knows who matches in with both, who's, who's on the call with somebody else. Now, at this point here, you don't have to worry about the other person that's there. I'm going to go through our next generation people and ask you, what do you think the job is that needs to be done? And Lucy, how about if you can uh, give us an idea of what do you think is the most critical job that we need to get done to accelerate to a better future? I feel to accelerate to a better future, connectivity and realising the social importance of networking, particularly from the events side of things, is crucially important in how we learn to re-communicate with each other once that space has opened up. Okay, and we'll dig into that in a little bit more because there's been a lot of networking going on um, and I, uh, over the last decades and sometimes networking is a nice feeling rather than an important feeling and so how do we get uh, from that nice territory into the important in there? Uh, Mahalia, um, uh, how do you think uh, we accelerate to a better future? What do you think is the, jo the big job that we need to get done? I think that it's important to teach past education so that experiences are more life taught they're just as important as degrees I feel like we need to encourage more life experiences and not just put so much focus on degree as the full experience I feel like our conversations need to be turned into concrete physical experiences too um, I think that there needs to be a balance between social media and physical interaction as well and that we don't we're not totally reliant on just social media to fix all the problems that we are now facing that we are now aware of as a community. Yeah, I remember there was uh, when uh, we saw the first lot of surveys that came out or um, online uh, protests uh, that were in there, and it was we realised that, well, yeah, everybody was going to click, yeah, I hate this thing, but clicking doesn't do much, does it? It's uh, getting yeah. it from, uh, from a simple interaction and something a little bit more detailed there. Uh, Amy? Awesome point. Yeah. So we'll get back into that because there's actually a lot there because lifelong learning was something that we were all meant to be involved with over 30 years ago. That was still thought to, that we were behind the curve, um, but our language still seems to be about get you across the line with a degree because there's industry in that, but uh, lifelong learning doesn't seem to have that same focus. Amy, Amy I'll go across to you. Um, what's the big job that you think needs to be done to get us to a better future? I think sustainability becoming the forefront of everything we begin to do and everything that we do moving forward, it not just being 
within design or within our lives, like a tick box, like I've done this, I'm sustainable, but actually it allowing us to make our choices. So it being the reason why we've made the choices, not I've made this choice, but actually it so happens to be sustainable. It, all, it so happens to be the most sustainable thing I've done. Okay. And so I'm going to dig into that because if we go in and we're thinking about the future where we've got, we've already got this um, signal that's coming through, which is that by 2050, it's a compliance requirement to be at net zero carbon. So that's no longer, that's not a statement you're going to excel. That's just a compliance statement. So the sustainability gets uh, tackled in that. But there's so much that we've got in sustainability, which is still broken, and then we have to go think about. And then how do you get from sustain to thrive? You know, I think that's the important yeah. Um, so we'll, uh, we'll have a look at that there. Um, uh, Kayla, if we can um, uh, get, uh, how do you think we go get to a better future? Uh, my biggest concern for the future would have to be gender equality and racism. And I think um, we have progressed a lot within the last 10 years, but I think we still need to, there is still a lot of work that needs to be done. And there are still gender equality now, as you speak, as well as um, racism. And um, we just need to address that and how we tackle that and, and you know issues that women are still facing all over the world, and especially in our, in architecture and design industry, we're still facing that in the UK. So yeah, that's that's my biggest concern. Yeah. In the future and yeah. And we're recording this just around International Women's Day, which is uh, both a, a great championing thing, but also in some in some guises, is it actually then uh, prolonging a state of inequality or is it actually you know if you're saying one day is for women or is it one day where a spotlight is so you know that's that's an important thing and uh, Gavinda I just saw a facial reaction there and I went great so we're going to talk about that because that's such an important thing that we understand why it's necessary to have spotlights that we that we shine on things because we do that all the time um, uh, and we've also got Xanthi. If you can um, give us an idea, what do you think the job to be done is? I guess um, my opinion on this lines quite closely with what's just been said, but it would be to start to introduce more diversity in decision-making processes, I think, um, but not just within design, I think across all sectors. So my perspective on this is that the more perspectives we can bring to the table, the more input we can have in making any type of decision, then the more considered the decision would be and therefore more well-rounded, which I think is only a positive. Yeah, and I think and, and there, there are two interesting things about diversity and inclusion, aren't they, that uh, you, can, you can have inclusion, um, but maybe you haven't got diversity there yet because I think, and and we did a series um, about unity around the world in the in the last month around the town halls, and it was interesting that we discovered in the United States. I've got a very binary way of thinking of the word unity, which now means one opinion, one idea. And then we dug in. And we said, but the universe is a representation of millions of stars, and and the United States is a collection of fifty states. It's diverse. But somehow their language has actually got that they have this binary idea that unity means one thought, one opinion. And so you're going, well, they've included everything, but they've lost the diversity value. So it was, it's really interesting how both of those actually are necessary that to be driving against each other. And, uh, and Chris, um, what do you think your big job to be done is? So, yeah, I mean, for me... I come from a te technology background and I strongly believe that it's technological innovation that we is one of the key things that we need to carry us forwards. But 
I want to caveat that I, I do think that the technology that we're developing at the moment is like the next step of our evolution as a species. It's what we're what we're bringing to advance us next. However, there's a real concern we're going to lose our humanity along the way. And that is why it's so important to combine these technologists with the artists and bring in the creative side to things. Um, at the moment, technologists alone, that's how you end up with, I don't know, smart fridges. You don't end up with very creative creative uses of technology. And I think that's the key for bringing the human side to our advancement. Yeah, and I remember seeing um, uh, an example where tech technologists thought, oh, well, it's got a small error rate, but it's not a problem. And uh, it had to do with um, uh, photos and uh, AI. And the way that the learning algorithms in with photos work is that they go through and that they take a best guess. And in most cases, the best guesses are right. But there were there were a few times that the classification of the photos were that they took a um, say African American uh, family, and that they actually use them and that they categorize them as not family photos but as apes. And then the people said, oh, but, but that's just an error that the algorithm made, you know, spasmodically. And, like, it, no, that is totally wrong. If, you, if the black box thinking can't get it right, if we can't, be, can't have the social standards, then we need to think about that. We saw the same thing happen with women when um, artificial intelligence was used on HR systems and scanning people's um, CVs that because it said, I know all about history and in history, all the great people were men because they, women were written out. So when women were applying, the technology was saying, choose the man because he's more like what history is. And you're going, oh, wow. So, so sometimes our just using raw technology isn't enough and it needs to be finessed there. Um, uh, David Ketch, I think you've, you've had a lot of work that you've done, which is how do you go blend the that raw technology and how do you go to design which actually produces something amazing and beautiful. And I'm thinking particularly around the musical instruments that you've been involved in. Music actually, because we can hear it, we can hear when it's just raw technology, we can hear when it's actually been beautifully integrated. Is that something that is maddening to get right? It can be difficult. Um, and it's, it's a good point to make because what's interesting with music and the design of musical instruments is that the pros, i.e. people who do it for a living, tend to be less concerned with the design. They're more interested in um, the output. So what it does, what it sounds like. And you'll notice you know, jazz sax players always have really old battered sax saxophones because they, they like to play a vintage Selma from about 1946 because it's the best sound for that type of music. And, you know, so, so sort of design in a sense is, is, is a bit weird. It's not... It's not design in, in, in the conventional sense. You're designing for the end uh, result more than anything else. Mm -hmm. So that, that is interesting. And, 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 of course, that's all about listening. It's actually, you know, music is a conversation. And unless you listen, it, it can't really happen. I mean, of course, you can have a soloist. But um, even then, you could argue that without the audience who are also listening, there's no, there's no performance. Um, but, you know, so music's a great uh, thing to look at in this conversation, I think. Yeah, and, and I remember uh, if I go back to Prince, who is, you know, just like, wow, what did he add to us? But he also added the MIDI, the MIDI guitar. And uh, the MIDI guitar was one of those examples where people were trying to go and thrust technology into a space that 
maybe that wasn't the right solution. Maybe there were other ways to go get there. So, so sometimes we see technology being applied for technology's sake, and other times we get to go see it because it's going to have that human balance and the human emotion. Okay, so I'm just looking at my list here. I've got uh, networking and working together. We've got lifelong learning, sustainability to help us uh, go thrive. We've got gender and racial equality, diverse uh, perspectives and decisions, and we've got technology and human butting uh, humans butting heads. That's a pretty good list there of some of the jobs that we need to get done. So in thinking about those things that need to get done, we also have to go think about, well, what are the enablers and the blockers that are there? So, um, Lucy, I want to go back to you. You've got there the, the idea of networking, working together, but I want to go in even a broader sense. Do you find that you're enabled and that you're empowered to do things or are you still feeling like if only um, I could? You know, where, where do you sit? I, I feel completely the, the, that I'm more uh, enabled now through the, the widening up of, of the digital realm. I, I do believe it. it's... It's opened up new possibilities to meet people internationally and over the world. But at the same time, I, I still think there's that desire for the, the human in-person connection. And I think how technology can play a role in trying to enhance that, but also acknowledging the, the difference between the digital and the physical. I, I think there's an in interesting conversation there. And yeah. And, uh, and then how about for you, Mahalia? Uh, are you finding that you're enabled to go do what you want to go do or are there? Um, it's quite a mix of both, to be honest. I do feel that there's so much out there that is accessible and readily, readily available if you're prepared to, to grasp it. But I also think um, there are quite some things in the way sometimes, and like especially in terms of diversity and inclusion. I think that's a big blocker for me personally, especially at this point in my life where I don't feel as though I can comfortably go and enter a space or enter particular places because of that lack of inclusion and diversity that's, that's, um, that there appears to be from the outside looking in. Yeah, and look, that's really unfortunate to, to hear that, uh, that you think that there's some spaces that you're not as welcomed in as other spaces that you are. And, uh, I feel like there is a lot being done, but there's... There's a lot being done in this initial starting point, but there's much more to be done, especially at this time. Like there's been loads of conversations that have been had, which have been great. And like people are starting to now create initiatives to address this, but I'm just hoping that it continues to go and the momentum stays. Um, yeah. So it's, it's a bit of both. It's a weird one. Cause like there's a lot that's being done, but there's a lot to still be done as well. Yeah. I'm going to put in, up an, uh, a link uh, to an article with, uh, with this uh, that uh, comes from a, a musician, author friend of mine named Dave Randall, and he, he goes and he talks about the uh, Suthic music scene that happened uh, over the last uh, 30, 40 uh, years, may even be a little bit longer than that. And it was actually the fact that there was exclusion that then meant that there was this really um, awesome music scene. And so what it does is it tells you a story about how that creativity comes in amongst communities, but it also tells a story about how we had something where there wasn't social integration there. And, and, and when I read it, I'm going, and I, am I happy about this? Like it was because people were excluded that this happened, but then now that area has changed so much. It's an interesting tale of how exclusion and creativity has come together. But then it's also the story about what happens when that inclusion happens, which is that there's 
almost a dilution of some of that which was a dilution of the movement, not necessarily anything uh, anything else that was of, of value there. So um, we'll put that in there. Um, uh, I want to go across to Chris, where enablers and blockers for you. You've got every bit of technology in the world that you can imagine. We can go spin up AWS servers at the drop of a hat. There's Surely there's nothing that's blocking us. Well, I mean, I just one thing to, to start would be I'd, I'd love to... I don't know if people have actually had a chance to picture what this entire past year would have been like if we were, say, 10 years behind technologically. Um, it's been a pretty miserable year for most people, but I could imagine that without the access of video conferencing, uh, all these sort of technology, very, very recent technological advancements, this is going to be, it would have been a miserable time. Um, but uh, I'm actually fortunate to, I don't want to self-plug too much, but I'm fortunate to work at a place that actually solves those problems in my eyes. Um, one of the things that we're really keen about here is we want to bring creatives and technologists together. Um, we've done so much research, um, like several papers we published on what makes uh, creative sectors special. And ultimately it came down to bringing together these artists who, who have uh, necessarily no technological ability and bringing them together with technologists who have almost necessarily no design or artistic ability. Uh, and when they come together, amazing things happen. So that's what we do here at the Fusebox. And we want more places like us, which are facilitating the integration of arts and technology. Because um, that's, yeah, that's when magic happens and fun. Yeah, and and I know you you mentioned there about imagine if uh, if there wasn't technology and the pandemic. I know this wouldn't be happening. We wouldn't have had uh, close to fifty town halls around the world coming from what I call the international design station. You know, I'm basically plugged into the world from a part of Australia, which is, it, which I, I'm an hour out of a major city. You know, it's uh, it's interesting. All that I'm connected to is the internet, and that's and that means that everything can work. Um, what I think is really interesting there is that there's almost a zombie apocalypse of technology, isn't there? For every good bit of technology that's out there, there's a thousand zombies that are trying to come at you. And it's mm -hmm. then working out how do we get movement behind the graceful, elegant, beautiful pieces of technology rather than the ones that the uh, that are crap. I remember when we were running the App Design Awards, we used to talk about that there were more crap apps than there were award-winning apps. And, you know, it's just crap technology is everywhere. Like we're fortunate this call is holding up. But in most cases, you wind up getting somebody that has a problem. I think, Lucy, you even started off the first connection that you're on was dodgy. Somehow you managed to have two connections. How privileged are we that we all have uh, incredible connections there? Um, uh, Amy, um, what do you find as uh, your blockers, enablers, what's um, helping to make your world fantastic and get you to that vision or what's holding you back? So I guess like everyone else has said before, there is kind of a mixture of enablers and blockers. And I think definitely sustainability and the whole conversation around how long will our world last if we continue acting the way we do has encouraged more people to think about what they're doing so more companies offering sustainably sourced fabrics for example and clothes so larger clothing manufacturers actually providing a whole sustainable range or people choosing a vegan option over a meat option because actually the impact of drinking a plant-based milk over the dairy industry is a better choice. And I think definitely 
that being kind of advertised more and it being more widely known that these are better choices and more people making these choices and is, has enabled more people to kind of choose the better or choose the better option, if that makes sense. No, and that's right. And, and better to me is a really interesting standard to go yeah. for. <laughs> to me, better is something that every designer is involved with every, every day of the week, that we're trying to go do things better. And, you know, and I'm thinking about uh, Pippa, the exhibitions that, uh, that, that you go make. The last one it isn't that it was bad. It just is we can do a better one this time, isn't it? You know, there's generation upon generation we work out how to go do things which are that little bit better each time we go do them doesn't mean the previous was bad and and i think that amy that idea about um, having intelligence uh, about well out of your choices because uh, some of us are still meditarians and probably will be for quite some time but as a meditarian there's choices that you can make which is beef uses a lot more water and consumes a lot more energy than chicken does um, you know, and we can go through in there and say, well, how does sustainably um, uh, farm fish fit into the equation there? So there's some heavy burden choices and there's some less heavy. And the standard that I use is, and pardon the French here, but I am Australian, I try to just be a little bit less shit on the planet every day. And by being a little bit less shit, uh, it, what, in that statement, I'm acknowledging that I am being shit but I'm trying to be a little bit less shit. And if I keep being a little bit less shit all the time, then I'm probably going to get to a better future. And it, although it sounds in some ways that I'm putting myself down, there's acknowledgement of the dilemma, which is for generations we've been doing things which haven't been fantastic. And I'm thinking going back a long, long, long time. You know, sustainability used not be a, a, a challenge because we weren't at the scale that we are. We've got to a certain threshold where at a scale that everybody doing their thing is now just more than the planet can burden, more of a burden for the planet than it can take. So I think that's such an important thing there. Um, Akela, um, if you can um, help us out, how do you think that we actually can give you the enablers and unblock things for you? Are you there or are there still some challenges? I know you're sitting next to somebody that you work with, so close your ears, Gavinia, you might hear something. <laughs> Um, I think it's the attitude of uh, some people that is the blockers. And um, I talked about earlier the uh, gender equality and racism. And um, I read something last month on BBC News um, regarding an Asian lecturer that was happening to uh, go out jogging, got beaten up by four guys. And, um, you know, it's, it's just not fair. And it, he, he felt unsafe and he felt uh, insecure and it's... Um, building this hostile environment and I think um, people people need to change that attitude and again because of the social media and the, the news um, where um, a, a pop, former US president saying that you know coronavirus comes from China and, and that Asian man jogging down got beaten up he's a victim so I think that is the blockers is the attitude of people but uh, there are also enablers um, Social media is a powerful tool, and uh, because of the pandemic, uh, we we it has allowed people to come together globally. You know, speak out using um, the social media platform um, as a way to to come together and make a change for for a better future. Yeah. And I, and I think there, I remember back that there were conversations about 
when a social media discussion goes and heads towards Hitler, that you know it's over. You know, if anyone mentions anything to do with Hitler and the Third Reich, I think it's going to be the same with the former president of the United States. That when it, when we get to thinking that there's an example of something that was wrong, we know all of it was wrong. We know everything about it. It's almost like you're saying, "Yep, that was the drunk." auntie or uncle at Christmas and they made a mess. Let's not think about that as Christmas. Let's remember everything else because there was nothing right in that. But I think what is really important is working out how people feel safe. It's also um, understanding how do you actually do things which are going to be in your best interest. We had an example here in Australia in the last week where a member of, a senior member of the Australian Defence Force was telling younger um, members of the Defence Force, that there were threats that were out there, particularly in their social life. And, uh, and he was saying, well, you should actually take a defensive position. And the rest of the country went, you can't be telling young women that they can't, you know, that they aren't safe on the street. That's the wrong message. You know, women have rights. And, and if you're reflected on it, at a social standard, that's right. We shouldn't be saying that, that you know, women can't go down the streets. But at the same time, he's in the defence business. He's in the defence force. He's used to working out how to tell these people how not to get shot and how not to get killed. It doesn't mean that he agrees with Al-Qaeda because he's telling the troops don't get shot by them. He's just saying do things that mean that you're not going to get hurt. And the example of your friend that was walking down the, or the person that you knew who got beaten up, that's a how do you make sure that you don't put yourself in some of those circumstances because there is harm that's out there. Uh, Mahalia was uh, telling us that there's some examples of places where she doesn't feel completely included. Now, that's terrible. That's a case. But if that's going to be damaging to her to have experiences where she doesn't feel included, then maybe at the diet of those experiences is to do less of them rather than more of them. It, it doesn't mean we agree with it. It's how do you be sustainable and how do you actually thrive and then through things like these sorts of conversations, shine a spotlight on it and say, this thing needs to be fixed. So I think that, you know, that's a really important thing. We look at that there. Uh, Xanthi, I think we've got you to go through enablers and blockers. Um, how are we going for you? Um, I think the answer in the vision that I had at the beginning, it's quite simple that to enable more diverse perspectives in decision-making processes. We just simply need to give people the opportunity to have their say. Um, and, I mean, that is being done. Like Monday, International Women's Day, that was an example of it, but that's not the top and bottom of diversity. Um, but, yeah, I think if we strive towards giving those equal opportunities and then people have an equal opportunity to therefore bring a perspective to the table, um, then there's no reason why we can't start including those perspectives in decisions, important ones as well. Hmm. The history of mankind is that some people shout and other people whisper. And uh, so I suppose as we go do that inclusion, that if we say everybody has the right to have their voice heard, um, we're going to find out that it's the National Front who starts shouting at us and then they're going to have behaviours that shout down the people who are trying to whisper if we're trying to go here complete diversity, we need to work out how to bias that conversation so that the people who are shouting are actually um, getting their amount of time. But 
even some of the things that they're shouting are just wrong. You know, where there's the blue sky, green sky thing. If somebody starts saying, but the sky is green and everyone can look out the window and see that it's blue, do we stop listening to them? How do we actually say, well, your diverse thought may not actually be appropriate? And I think that's part of that social media challenge that we've got there. It's given an amplification platform for people to go and actually scream at us about things which are known as, you know, alternative facts. Uh, we've got people who actually then build platforms and very sophisticated platforms that try to surround us and swarm around us with their agenda and that doesn't allow the everybody's voice to come through. So I'm interested of if we just give people an opportunity, we know that often a nefarious effort will overwhelm them because that's the history of mankind. It's how do we actually make sure that we bring up those whispering voices and give them the chance to roar and, and get through. I think that's the design challenge there. So, so I love the insight that you've got there, but we also know you know, the moment that uh, we give people opportunities, often it's the bad part of the culture that comes through rather than necessarily the best part there. Um, Pippa, help me out here because um, you, you've given us a, a, th a little snippet here about flexibility in that. Give us a bit of insight. Well, actually, I was, I was thinking about it in a different... I was thinking about in terms of um, how I've found my voice slowly over time and actually how working in a flexible way, um, which technology does really allow us, um, has really kind of been my friend over my career. So, I mean, I've managed to have two children and run a business and actually finding time to be able to answer emails, phone calls and doing it in a seamless way, actually, that I can combine you know, being a mum and being a kind of, you know, businesswoman. And and I think it's really interesting what you're saying about the different voices. And I, I, I found as our studio has grown, I, I really enjoy the unusual voices that um, come to the fore, you know, um, that the quiet voices that you have to kind of nurture and, and wait and find out. Um, and I think it's this, this idea that actually within the workplace, um, it's about kind of difference and uh, really enjoying um, that kind of difference that, that creates um, ultimately also nice places to work and um, places that creativity really thrives. Mm. And uh, I'm going to throw to David again because David not only is an awesome designer, but he's also, I think you claim to be a part-time musician, although I think your soul tells me that you're really a musician who masquerades as a designer, but we don't have to dig into that. But those different voices, playing jazz, it's all about the, it's about how you're feeding off each other's energy, isn't it? It's, uh, it's, it's the energy that's in the band that's going to create that, that jazz moment. Yeah, I think I need to just qualify that that last. Uh, I mean, uh, I still get paid to play music by people, so um, I guess, uh, but but I don't do it very often because it doesn't pay that much money. Mm. But yeah, you know, we, we're using this in the business. Um, it's about listening, and, and in fact, myself and one of the directors in the company were working on a series of videos, which are about jazz, um, intended for business people. And, and it's, it's really, what, what can we learn from jazz? It'll be just about everything. Jazz, in fact, has its own set of issues to deal with as well. It's by no means, uh, you know, um, perfect. There, 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 have been, there haven't been enough women in jazz. Um, that's something that's changing. But 
one of the things we believe in is that business can learn a lot from jazz. And, and, and the reason being is that probably jazz more than anything, any other form of music, is made in the moment. Uh, it's largely improvised, spontaneous music in its, in its purest form. And to do that, you have to listen. You have to listen to every other member very, very carefully. Um, otherwise, it just becomes a noise. And I know to some people, some jazz is just a noise. But um, that's, that's the key. And it's, it's, it's working to listen and working to listen better. And I think even professional musicians will say that they're still working on that. Um, you can be an egoist uh, jazz musician who plays louder than everybody else. There are plenty around, you know. And you can be one that you can be. A, you can be a drummer that isn't isn't very loud and somehow gets overlooked. So we have the same set of issues, but the crux of it is really, really centered around listening to the other people and doing something with that listening. I think it's not enough to just listen. I think we're, we're all capable of listening. But it's like, what do you do with what you just heard? Do you play it back? Do you forget it? Do you add something to it and make it better? And, you know, listening to actually move forward is, is really, really important. So, yeah, great, great topic. And I hope we can share some of that stuff with you at one of these uh, events in the future once we've finished it. And I've always worked with, uh, when I was uh, running a design practice, I tried to work out, was a project orchestration or was it jazz? Were we trying to design something for an organisation that had a orchestrated model, which was that everybody had their piece and there was sheet music and they were meant to be following a leader like the CEO, or did we have an organisation that was more like a jazz ensemble and they all had to feel and work off each other? And, and, and I think my success was that, I was able to work out the model of what they, how they were going to implement it, and that was a very important thing. Uh, Govinda, help me out here. You're, you're somebody that I love from that enablers and blockers because you're like the lion who roars when you've actually, but you listen and then you roar. So obviously you, you feel very enabled and that your voice is included there. Has that always been the case? No, it's interesting because it's, um, it's something that, that's been quite topical recently um, partly, you know, out of the brief that's come in here, but I think I think I it's something I've always had to fight for. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I did my little quote, I did a little quote for um, International Women's Day, and in that I was saying, you know, I grew up um, as a little brummy Asian girl from a fairly middle class but first generation Indian family, and have had to fight for all of this, and therefore, you know, it's almost like I feel a sense of duty that we have to we as our generation as well you know we have to trailblaze and push the agenda so that the people coming up behind us don't have to have the same fight that we've had to have so i'm an enabler i hope for people coming up that's my my hope and desire but but i think there's still so many blocks out there you know and i think that there's that we look at 2021 and there should have been so many changes that should have happened that should be in place that are yet you know, still being debated. The fact that we're having to have some of the discussions we're having about inequalities, for example, is something, you know, it's been, it's it's too long in the tooth. It shouldn't even be happening. We should have been past this. And actually now we should be tackling the other things like education, poverty, you know, regeneration, reforming our world. We shouldn't still have to be fighting that fight. 
And uh, I'm, I'm thinking there about uh, you know, anecdotes that I'd heard from people who were Olympic coaches. And I spent quite a long time around elite sport. And, uh, and what interests me with Olympic coaches is they hate children that came from a privileged upbringing who get into a team because they're not actually that hungry to win the medal. There's other options for them in life. And I, and I think, and I'm ever going to throw a long way back here as a cultural reference, the Rocky series, you know, it was a bit like the only opportunity they had to get out of the working in the meatworks was to be the champion fighter. And, and so those stories get told, whether it's in opera, Rocky, or, you know, in more recent times. And, and so there's something about the struggle that gives the hunger because you want something and that makes people, often we see people who come through and they've had a, a, a fully included, fully enabled, that they don't get the hunger that, uh, that's there. So there's a double-edged sword. It shouldn't be so goddamn hard and people shouldn't be excluded. But then, again, that's probably part of what makes us and, and, and gives us the drive there. That in itself is it's like this uh, philosophical dilemma if we, if it's not hard, therefore people aren't going to try. That's the wrong that's the wrong framing. But then, if it is too easy, then do people have the hunger to go and actually work out how to get around it? I know for myself, I've had to go and drive and do things because something I don't don't share a lot. I have no degree. You know, I've just worked through life, and it's been the quality of my work that has actually said that, that where people have invited me to go do the next thing which is very different than people who have actually had that degree. So I've been in lifelong learning all my life, um, Hayley. You know, that's been, that's been my focus is because my lifelong learning was the stumbling and the mistakes that I made on projects that then got me to the next project. But I was never invited into a room because I was a degree designer. I was invited into the room because of the quality of my work. Did that make me a better person for the project maybe I was hungrier maybe I wasn't but gee it would have been nice to have been invited in sometimes there um uh, uh Will Knight I want to go and ask you um about the perspective there about those enablers and blockers you've seen you know literally thousands of people come through the various design shows that you've either curated or that you've been the uh, director for are the people that are the hungriest and actually go the furthest have they been have they overcome something have they actually um, I've been working for a, a company which is, you know, the big name. Tell us about what you've seen. Yeah, I think um, I think creativity is sourced from all sorts of uh, places. I, I wouldn't necessarily draw a line in terms of, you know, the context of uh, a commercial trade show or even a design festival, for that matter. I think it's as much as anything else. It's what's what, whatever informs the narrative. So some of the more editorial uh, components of what we have done. Uh, over those years to really begun to kind of tell a story and begin those conversations. And going, going back to Govinda, I think, um, you know, the responsibility of those events and those comings together are about the trailblazing, demonstrating what's possible, telling those stories, uh, reins reassuring and being able to provide new platforms. Uh, and, I, you know, obviously I think that this is one a very good example of how we do work together to create this correspondence. And we've all been sort of locked away in our thoughts, uh, very literally in our homes. And I know we're all bursting to come out of this in a better place. So the conversations are really important. I think now, you know, we really need to look at what the action is. And that's really a big challenge. Yeah, I think that's pretty important there. 
And uh, and then um, Simon, you've recently so in what it's the last twelve months, you found your way over to France, and that you're trying to go and integrate yourself into society there. How are you finding that? Because this is a new, you know, you had built up a very integrated and enabled life in the UK, and then you've gone and you've actually gone somewhere else where you're now having to go and start again. Has that been troubling for you? Do you feel like, oh, I stepped down a few gears, or is it actually that it's just a totally new chapter and it's actually joyous that you're going and exploring? I think it's a real mixture, Mark, because, yes, it's exciting, it's an adventure, and it's something that is kind of liberating, but absolutely it's also difficult, it's frustrating because I don't speak fluent French or even basic French. And because we're in this situation where we have a curfew, so you have to be home by six o'clock, there isn't the opportunity to even try to integrate ourselves into you know French culture and French society or the even the neighborhood so I feel very um, displaced if you like in that respect because yes it was easy to get here get on the train that's fine but I don't feel like kind of gone backwards I kind of feel I'm treading water but that's probably because of the situation in terms of the sort of restrictions on travel and movement and 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 meeting with other people but I do feel that that will change and over time there will be more enablers there will be less blocks to me and at the moment I've got those um connections and communication via you know online zoom etc but most of those are with people um, that I already know that I was speaking English. So it's not helping me in terms of my my language skills. But I, I do feel that, yes, at some point that will change. So, yeah, it's a mixture of feelings. I'm glad that we've taken the leap and it's something that was on the cards for some time. And now I'm in a situation where I want to embrace it but I'm not being allowed to because, you know, the the rates are too high and the vaccinations are really slow. It seems to be really bad in France in terms of the, the rollout of that. And it's much more successful in the UK and progressive. But, um, yeah, I just have to be patient, really. It's about um, seeing the future as being positive and being part of that and not getting too frustrated and definitely as a lot of people have said using technology to to kind of enable that communication and to change things and and then feel more included i feel excluded in some ways but um i want to feel more included in what's going on mm. and do you think the change there about feeling more included would would that change a lot if there was one key friend in France who then was opening up and then introducing you around like that there's a huge acceleration when that happens isn't there yes there is and I do have friends here um and sort of a building up relationships with new people that we've met as well and that does help and we're going you know we're looking to buy a house and so we have to go and meet new people and see agents and things like that um so it is happening, but it's happening more slowly than I'd like. Perhaps I'm sort of a bit impatient because I came over here thinking, oh, great, we can just, you know, um, go and and settle, rent somewhere and find the place we want to be. And there's just been lots of sort of maybe administrative um, hurdles we've had to get over, and they are very frustrating. And you really understand how a country operates when you live in that country and then you also appreciate what you may have 
taken for granted somewhere else. Um, so that's been a huge learning curve. Um, but yes, you're right. It's 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 almost waiting for that opportunity to meet somebody that I haven't met before that is on the same sort of wavelength and can really kind of open up doors for me. And um, because I'm no, you know, I'm known as somebody who likes to, um, you know, communicate, connect get together with people, socialize and, and be with other people. So, so that in itself has been, um, it's like my wings have been clipped, <laughs> yeah. finding it quite difficult. I think that's really important because I'm, I'm circling back here on Lucy, on your first comment that you had, which was about the, uh, the networking and working together. And there's a perfect example there. If I go think of uh, for both Simon and Milhaser, the, what's going to happen when somebody actually says, I'm going to actually elevate you, I'm going to give you a hand up, I'm going to walk you into a space that you normally wouldn't be, wouldn't feel invited or welcome to, go for it. And, and there's such an, such an important thing about having people who are being generous to actually just open some doors. And those doors being open then wind up being such an amazing thing. I know when um, when I started the London Design Awards, David Ketch was really open in saying, welcome, come into our studio. Um, and he was giving me some more confidence that there was an opportunity to go continue what we were doing in London. Now, David probably didn't realise that that was what he was doing, but that small step that he gave was just a little bit further along the track. And then the next studio that I went to was a little bit further along the track. And then as I was given those little opening doors, I was able to piece together how that meant that I was included in the London design community. And then Will Knight was another key person in that, where Will was like, yeah, come in and, and be involved. Those That part of networking is really important. It's the opportunity that you say to somebody, meet somebody else that I know because the collisions happen there. And then, you know, I, when I started this, and I think it was 2013 when I arrived in, in London to go and say, let's do the London Design Awards, David and Will, I'm not sure if you knew each other at that stage, but here we are, you know, a short eight years later and you're on a call together, and, but you're both in London, I'm from Australia, and somehow that networking opportunity that began as just one meeting has then turned into other things. And I think, Pippa, it's the same with you, you know, um, and Phil, I'm going to get to you in a moment. You know, it's like we've all actually wound up meeting each other because somebody enabled in that sense. And I think that's the most important thing that we can do is work out how do we create those collisions which are unplanned and those conversations which are unplanned that then extend and enable us in there. Phil, I want to go across to you and actually um, uh, just get your perspective. You, Every time you've been on one of the town halls, you're the often the last person to speak and the last person to put yourself forward. And so it's a, it shows that you're a huge listener in there. So you've been listening to what we've been talking about for the last 35 minutes or so. What, is, what have you come up and what have you summarised? Yeah, no, thanks, Mark. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I suppose uh, as I'm listening, I'm, I'm wondering if actually technology is the blocker now. And uh, for fear of Chris jumping on me and, and telling me off because we share a space using emergent tech, um, I wonder if all the things that um, we're kind of hearing and listening are that we need to go back to some of those human traits of meeting and just having... Um, you know, I've been on multiple calls, as, as everyone has, but I've been doing some teaching with Ravensbourne Uni, um, you know, and it just there's you're not having those kind of human interactions or those 
sidebar conversations with people that aren't always necessary around work. You know, the same for the, you know, most of the people on the call, it feels quite um, set up and staged to some degree. And it's often as a creative thinker and a, and, and a person that enjoys meeting people, you want to have those kind of sidebar conversations. You know, exactly, you know, I think Will and myself have spoken about when we first met, you know, physically for design dialogue, you know, it's very different now to turning up on a call and there's 50, 60, 70 people. Likewise, for probably some of the, the younger generations that are here, they're missing out on listening and observing and also getting uh, involved in some of those conversations. And so I wonder if we're going to find that actually, whilst on the call, we're talking about the, um, how people will use technology to enable. I wonder if we're going to really enjoy having those moments of, particularly as creative thinkers, coming back together and just talking and just seeing where that conversation goes. And there's probably something super powerful about that um you know life experience seeing things from you know getting those multiple voices and lenses in i i think is going to be kind of gold dust mm. i am um, I, I i'm interested there about you know is it technology that's the problem every enabler is going to actually also have challenges with it and so it, i think it's very easy for us to say well technology is a problem but if I go back, there was a, a project I did in the mid-90s which was working out what was the impact that technology had on societies and what would it have in the future. And if you go back, technology has always affected us, you know, even if it comes down to the technology of how you grow seeds and how you grow crops. That changed the way how societies worked. Then when we got some tools that helped out, it changed the way that, the, that societies worked. And what it does is it, uh, it helps us to go accelerate into the future technology, but it also comes with problems. And, but it's how fast we respond to those problems. You know, we're, we're finding out now that things like the PFAS chemicals that, were, that came out of the petrochemical industry for things like Teflon and that, which are called uh, the forever uh, kept chemicals, that they just don't disappear. Now, it looks like the, the chemicals industry knew about the problems of the PFAS um, pollution going back to the 1950s. So we've, you know, we've got a 50-year period that it was actually not dealt with. And so I think the, the, the question is we know that there's some problems with technology. It's how fast can we go correct them is the thing rather than actually saying technology is the problem because then we might actually say, well, let's not use it. Um, uh, Chris, I can see almost like a I just want to scream at this point. I want to talk about things. Come and help us. Uh, sorry, there's just a couple of things because I really wanted to bounce off of that. Um, Sorry, adjusting mic. Uh, I do think that, um, that yeah, you're right, that there are really big problems generated by technology. And, and actually, I think some of the biggest concerns that we're dealing with today are results of technology. I mean, we can, we've, we've skipped over, we, we mentioned our former, the former US president. Um, now, the thing is, is one of the things that I think annoys me personally uh, is there is, because uh, I think the technology social media for instance was a fantastic technology to be developed it happened maybe a little bit too quickly and the people that should have been involved in that were the um people who study social sciences for instance people actually their job is to research this area uh to see what impact it would have on humanity but the problem was is that the people studying social science were so different from the people that were studying the technology 
that there was no crossover of interests at all. And I think there needs to be people that are pulling people together to make them work on these issues together. There's also a big thing about certain technology companies are awfully, often seen to be operating in bad faith. I don't want to name any, but some start with G, some start with F. Um, they're all pretty shady with what they do with your data. But I think people now have come to kind of expect that. But what's really exciting to see is open source projects that are starting to take off. And that is a whole sector of technology that's just exploding at the moment. And that's what I love to work on is projects where the people that are creating the projects are the people that want it. Uh, and it's not being made by someone who's deciding and doing research to say these people should want it. It's people going out there and thinking this really needs to exist and nobody out there is doing it. There's no profit motive for a company to do it. We should just do it as a team. And some of like the best tools that I can introduce, I've been working with Phil on, uh, Phil with, they're all open source tools these days because a lot of the big companies are doing. But that's coming out of a conversation of humanizing that tech. Exactly. And it comes by two people talking as opposed to sitting on a camera and trying to, you know, distance themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I mean, yeah, interesting. And the very last point was about, someone was talking about how, about drive um and sort of that commitment and and there's a slight concern that with this generation there's a expectation of this of this drive this like tenacity to be young and keen and ready to do whatever's necessary to get yourself there and so if you look at industries like uh, the game sector and animation special effects for instance that's where you see these crunch hours where people doing 18-hour contracts and getting recycled at the end of a project or 20-hour work days even 24-hour shifts um, there's some ridiculous things happening and it's almost like an expectation on this generation that they should be ready for that and they want it. Uh, and I don't think there should be anything wrong with wanting to work at six hour day or working at eight hour day or whatever it may be. Yeah. I just want to, I want to go into the, uh, to the non next generation designers. I'm staying away from a term that I could use, which, uh, which I, which I don't want to put that label on myself. Actually, I'll, okay, I'll come out. We're probably the elders, yuck. You know, so I, I've never thought of myself that way. But for the elders, tell me about um, uh, Govinda, for you. Were you asked to go do some just, you know, churn and burn on some projects in the early stage of your career? I think all of us have been through it, haven't we? Yeah. I mean, I think um, I think everybody starts with the, the hero projects are, are few and far between, aren't they, really? Um Churn and burn is pretty much people's bread and butter, and it's still a big part of what a lot of people do. But, um, you know, they can lead to, to projects that facilitate creativity and growth and, and the next big idea. So I think, you know, the ideas can come from, as it's already been said, you know, it, it is about human interaction and it's about getting people together, and that's where the next bright idea can come from but yeah i mean we're all we're all going to have to do that sort of uh, bread and butter work all the time around the the, the hero projects yeah and i and i, I know when i Pippa, i'll go across to you that uh, when i go see the work that uh, that is submitted into the awards from yourselves is just incredible projects but we don't see all the work that you do in a year, do we? We only see really the cream that's coming through. There must be, as Govinda was referring to it, that bread and butter work that's in there as well. That's And, and the reason I'm trying to focus on this is Chris has brought up a very interesting point about people are being demanded of. What we do is that we often just talk about the very small part of people's works and their portfolio. We don't talk about all of that drudge work, the hard work, probably 80% of our time. 
How does it work for at um, uh, at uh, your studio? Are, are you getting to the point where it's hundred uh, percent is the awesome work, or is it less than hundred percent? Well, it's a real mixture, um, and even some of our really high-profile, sort of fabulous projects that I guess are the hero projects, um, a lot of it is really difficult. Um, and, you know, is kind of hard work. I mean, you know, the nice thing, I've run a company now for 20 years or so, and it's going in the right direction in that I'm enjoying, I can now say that the, the jobs that I'm doing, we can be a bit picky about them. Obviously, this whole last year is a, a kind of, you know, very different thing that we've taken on lots and lots of um, different work. And because, you know, we're about 20 people, um, and um, about half are working in the cultural sector, which is what I work in. Um, and I guess our work tends to be more creative. Um, so, um, yes, I was just remembering that when I was at um, university, um, we were sponsored by Apple because it was a, a year that computers were sort of just being invented. And just before that, architecture, um, when I was at my first jobs were all, you know, drawing on tracing paper and, and kind of scratching things out. Um, so Apple sponsored my year and we all had like IQ tests and they like tested our creativity and they kind of gave us all these tasks. And at the end of the year, they came to the a kind of huge conclusion that if you're good at design on paper, you'd be good at design on the computer. So actually it's, it's enabling us to do what we can do anyway. I don't, there's something, I always remember that as a kind of lesson that it's just a tool, but actually it's also important not to use it all the time as well. And, uh, and it's, it's likely that uh, new tools help you accelerate to mediocrity faster, don't they? You know, it's, a, it's like we're pushing out the, the mediocre or the terrible stuff at a faster rate, as well as pushing out the brilliance at a faster rate. It's a, it's, where do you want to shine the spotlight on the mediocre or do you want to shine it on the, on the excellent and awesome in there? So what I want to do, because we, we're going to wrap up here because we've been going for about 55 minutes and it just feels like time's flown. Yeah? But what I want to do is ask everybody on the call a very simple question of it'll be a better future when. And uh, Lucy, seeing we heard your verse, uh, voice first time off, um, help us out, Lucy. It'll be a better future when. It will be a better future when we perhaps approach listening across all diversities, cultures and backgrounds with that intention for a better future, that positive energy and really what action we then take from that. Mm -hmm. And Mahalia, it'll be a better future when? I believe it'll be a better future when we can transform these conversations we're having into physical, concrete experiences. Um, to do this, we should use technology as a tool and not a takeover. And some of these include diverse workspaces, more sustainable built environments throughout and open opportunities more readily available. Amy, it'll be a better future when? It'll be a better future when the actions and choices that we are making now only positively benefit and enable the lives of those to come. Fantastic. Aquila, it'll be a better future when? It'll be a better future when everyone needs to be treated equally, not defined by their skin colour, gender or religion, and there's no racial injustice and division. And there should be a sense of belonging, welcoming, and everyone uniting together. Mm -hmm. Chris, it'll be a better future when? It'll be a predictable, but it might be a better future when we have a more seamless uh, transition between virtual 
and reality. When we can start to actually transition and combine the two together, I think that's going to be really important. Yeah, fantastic. Santi, it'll be a better future when? Um, I think it'll be a better future when we start to consider more diverse perspectives when making key decisions. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Pippa, it'll be a better future when? Uh, so very similar, um, when we enjoy difference and we respect everybody. Mm-hmm. And uh, Govinda, it'll be a better future when? I think it'll be a better future when we start to implement all the things we spend many, many hours talking about, where we are kinder, we are more thoughtful, we are more balanced, we care about the world, the people that live in it, and our actions start to show what we talk about. Action. David, it'll be a better future when? A better future when people like me can understand how to get unmuted. Um, No, it'll be a better future when we teach the idea of not judging other people on the national curriculum. Mm -hmm. Phil, it'll be a better future when? When we can stop doing all these video calls. Um, (laughs) And I think think it'll be a better future when we can see and feel a bit better. Um, And I think have more of these intergenerational conversations. I think it's uh, that's important for our future. Simon, it'll be a better future when? I think it'll be a better future when uh, we really listen to each other, we learn from past mistakes, and there is real social justice, and also including all demographics, so not just the educated people um, that have access to things, but people from all values and walks of life. Mm-hmm. And will Knight take us home here? It'll be a better future when? I think it'll be a better future when a vision is set and we can bring people behind that vision, making sure that everyone understands that a better future is possible and when we work together. Yeah, fantastic. Well, everybody, I've been so privileged to go and listen and to participate in a conversation with you about how a next generation can see that we're getting to a better future faster because it's actually, it's your future. You know, if we go look at the uh, the elder people on the call here, we've probably got 20 years left in our career. You've got at least 40 years left in your career. So um, we've got to make sure that we're giving you a decent platform to go do that. Everybody, I'm always humbled when I've got your time and your and your heads to go actually walk around a topic with. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you all very much for your time. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.